Okay, great. Well, I really wasn't sure what I was going to pray, uh, share this morning. It was a bit of a change midweek. Uh, I actually had something else kind of lined up, but I felt God led me to this, and I'm glad I did, because it does kind of fit in, I think, with what we've been sharing this morning. So uh, it's entitled The Glory of God, and some bits will come up on the screen behind me as we go through. But have you ever thought about the humble safety pin? You know that little safety pin that, you know, you just click, the, you know, you move it in and it moves around and, you know, I remember it for, you know, holding kids' nappies and that in place. Uh, although, no, we used to get bands for that, didn't we? But back in the day, I think, you used to use safety pins for whatever, whatever. But do you know, simple though the safety pin is, it often ranks in the top 50 inventions of all time. Because back in the day, you know, before sellotape and whatever else, people used safety pins for loads of stuff. And the guy that invented it was a guy called Walter Hunt. And in 1849, when he patented it, it should have made him one of the richest men of the 20th century. Millions and millions and millions of dollars he would have been worth back in the day when millions and millions and millions of dollars really was a huge amount of money. And yet, he sold the right to the patent for $15. To a friend of his because he owed some money. He could have become one of the richest men on the planet, but he threw it away because he just didn't realize how valuable what he had truly was. And I think that the, one of the reasons why the psalmists were inspired by God to write the psalms that they wrote in the Bible was to remind us, was to show us, was to encourage us as the people of God, to understand the value of what we have because who God is. So this morning, we're going to look at a psalm, and we're going to look at Psalm 29, which, with all the other psalms, is a great psalm. And first, I just want to go through it, and I just want us to catch something of the glory, the majesty, the splendor, the power of God that I think the psalmist is trying to capture and then I want us to think about, well, how should we then respond to such a glorious, such a majestic, such a splendid, such a powerful God? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to jump straight in. I'm going to read through the psalm. I'm going to read it nice and slowly. I'm going to read it in a tone of declaration, because that's how I believe it was intended to be read. It wasn't supposed to be read like you were reading a manual from Ikea. This is a poem. This is, the, this is someone trying to write something about the glory of God. It's not supposed to be, I think it will come up behind me. If you've got your, you know, Bibles, machines, whatever, feel free to turn to it. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. 
The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand, to capture, to see something of what the psalmist is trying to express to us about your glory this morning. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. Right now, we open up our hearts. We open up our minds. We want to hear from you. We pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So this psalm, really, it's broken down into three parts. And that's how we're going to look at it. The first part is, is just the first two verses, all about ascribing glory to God and worship to God. And then really the next eight verses go together. And really it's talking about how creation does that, how it ascribes glory to God through this picture of a storm. And then ending in this united and resounding cry, glory. And then the final two verses actually, I think, help us as people, particularly God's people, to understand, well, how should we respond to him? So that's where we're going to go this morning. Let's begin by looking at this ascribing glory and worship to God. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The glory, the majesty of God is the central theme of this psalm. And it starts in heaven. Starts with heavenly being, the angels worshipping him. And then if you like, the scene moves from heaven where it begins down onto earth. And what we kind of see is a thunderstorm that rises from the sea and then sweeps across down through the land into the desert. And then we see it end with this kind of serene calm as God is enthroned over his creation, blessing, strengthening his people. So when you read a psalm like this, you have to picture it. You have to use what God gave you called an imagination. You have to try and understand the picture with words that the psalmist, the poet, is painting. And in this psalm, the scene moves from heaven to earth and then to God ruling over and blessing his people. So let's start where it starts with the heavenly beings. And the Bible says they are ascribing to God. Now, ascribing, not really a word you hear very often, is it? But it just means giving. Just means giving to God. And they're giving to God the honor and the glory that's due to him and due to his name. They're recognizing, they're declaring his majesty, his power, his holiness. They're worshiping him. And when you look at a psalm like this, sometimes just getting your head around the meaning of individual words can really help you as you kind of paint that picture in your mind of what's happening. 
So to ascribe is to give. And if you're going to give, that means you've got to engage the mind. You've got to think about it. You're ascribing. You're not just reacting. You're ascribing. No, no, this is who God is. This is who he is to me. You're ascribing it. And here they're using their hands. They're using their voices. They're raising things to declare the greatness of God. And then this word worship, which actually just means to bow down. That's all the word means, literally, to bow down. But of course, that engages the will, the heart, because they take a humble attitude. No, no, he's God and we're not. Even angels, he's God, we're created beings. He's God, we're not. They bow down, they're taking this attitude of humility, of adoration, because he's the only one worth worshipping. This word holy, sometimes people go around in knots about that, but it's not difficult really. Holy speaks of what God is. He's holy. He's holy, he's completely holy. No, no shadow in him. No side, nothing wrong. He's completely holy, completely pure. The white is white. The right is right. That's God. Every day, every step, every action, completely holy. That's who he is. While this word glory that actually is about everything that comes from him, everything that proceeds from him. Therefore, his glory as creator fills the whole earth. It says in the psalm about the glory of his name. Now, the glory of his name is something a little bit different. The glory of his name is that specific revelation of who he is that's given to his children through what he says and what he does. That's the glory of his name. See, when I got saved, I didn't know who God was. And then God decided to reveal to me the glory of his name. Ah, now I can see who he is. It's a revelation of who he is to his children, to those who will bow the knee to him. So these angels, they're not having a little sing-song. They're not around the campfire in heaven doing a few gingangulis or whatever. They're not doing that. They're seeing and understanding something of the holiness, the absolute purity, and the glory and the majesty and the wonder of God. And they're bowing down to him and they're worshipping him and they're ascribing all that to him, the one who deserves all worship. That's what they're doing. And of course, that's what we do when we come and genuinely worship God. I loved worshipping God this morning right here. Nowhere I would rather be. Worshipping God with God's people. Lifting our voices. That's what we did this morning. That's what I did. I hope it's what you did. I ascribed to him the glory that was due his name. Worshipped him. And what the angels did in this psalm is a pattern for us. Because guess what? One day we're going to join them. And we're going to do the same thing together. So that's the first two verses. That's where it starts. That's the picture the psalmist is painting. But then the psalm goes on. The picture moves on. And it ends with this cry of all creation, glory. But there's a few more bits in the middle with the psalmist trying to kind of paint you a picture. I'll try and paint it in a second. But 20 years ago, Jane and I went to Jamaica. And it uh, still holds very fond memories to me because it was our honeymoon 10 years later, which was a bit late, but, you know, better late than never. And 
I think I may have said before, you know, we won a Mr. and Mrs. competition over a bottle of rum, and we were in an all-inclusive resort, which did strike me, how stupid are we? We were so pleased, we got back, we got a bottle of rum. Yeah, we can just go down the bar and buy as many rums as we like, it's all-inclusive, we got a band. Sad over, I think we took it home, sat in the cupboard, and we threw it away. But anyway, it's what you do when you're young and stupid, probably what we do now. But one thing about being in the Caribbean is that most nights there would be a, a, a rainstorm. Most nights you would have a tropical rainstorm for about 20 minutes each night. And having had glorious sunshine most of the day, suddenly you'd come out and the heavens would open. The rain would come down. I mean, suddenly just raining, you know, like golf balls. The whole of the resort and the beaches covered. The rain would come down. You look out to sea and the lightning, oh my goodness, the lightning, oh, it's like it lights up. I remember standing there, like the, the, the guests, most of whom have been drinking away, you know, since seven o'clock in the morning, honestly, especially if they're from Minnesota. Man, they drunk, didn't they? They've been drinking all day. They could virtually, but I tell you what, come about six o'clock when the show started, you know, when God started the show, as it were, they all just stopped and looked. And you stand there looking out to see the rain will come down, the lightning will, and the thunder. Oh my goodness. You'd be walking along and suddenly, and the thunder would come. Most nights, we, I'd, I'd never seen anything like it before. I'd seen English storms, but English storms are not like Caribbean storms. That was a real storm. I can still remember it now. I can still remember picturing it, but you know, more than that, I can remember what I experienced. I can remember how it felt to be standing there watching this amazing storm in front of my eyes. Something so powerful. Something you realize no human could master, could recreate. I mean, the closest we get to it is, you know, New Year's Eve, we set off some fireworks and everyone goes, wow. Let me tell you, the fireworks in London or Sydney, which I've seen, are nothing compared to that Caribbean storm that I witnessed most of those nights. And I think that's the point, really, that the psalmist is kind of trying to describe here. With the point being that it all serves, this storm that he's going to talk of, it all points to God, the creator. It's one way that God speaks. It's one way that he reveals himself to men and women. When we look at creation and something like that storm that I've described and that the psalmist is going to go on to describe, we shouldn't really marvel and wonder at the power and majesty and cleverness of nature. Ooh, Mother Nature, she's so wonderful. No, she's not. God is wonderful. Love you, David Attenborough, but come on. You're just, you're, giving the, you're just describing it to the wrong person, but you're describing the thing right. So let's read through what the psalmist says. I want you to try and imagine the scene in your mind's eye. It says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty water. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. So it's like he's taken, you know, the voice of the Lord, but then what he's really describing are the effects of a storm. Do you see that? That's, what he's, that's kind of what he's doing here. 
So he starts every line with the voice of the Lord, but then he kind of goes on to describe the effects of this storm. What happens when this storm rises from the ocean, thunders across it, sweeps through the land? Because, of course, not only is the voice of God powerful, like the things described in the storm, but the voice of God is even more powerful than them because he made them. But also God can be seen and heard through the storm by people. So it's like God is talking to them. It's like that's his voice speaking to them. That's the kind of literary device, I think, is the term that the psalmist is using. And, you know, the first reaction of most people when they find themselves in the first proper storm, think about your kids or with lightning or thunder, is to declare something like that. Oh, my God, what is, what is that? And actually, when people do that, they're exactly right. Because kind of God is speaking to them. They just encountered a wonder that God has made. And oh my goodness, what is that? You know, lightning flashes. It is God speaking to them. And in the Psalms, something of the glory of God is declared and visible as the thunder roars out from this storm, as it rises over the mighty Mediterranean Sea and moves across from west to east over the sky as it sweeps over the range of Lebanon and into the wild expanse of Kadesh, and as the storm, kind of these flashes of lightning, which is lightning up the sky. It's not just that something of the glory of God can be seen by this storm. It can also be heard as the thunder roars out, even above the noise of this great crashing sea, over the vast expanse of the ocean. Back in the day, you know, the most powerful forces that were experienced by people were earthquakes, the raging sea, and heavy thunderstorms. And the psalmist is using carefully selected, if you like, descriptions within a heavy thunderstorm. Because what he's saying is, these most powerful of created things that you say, wow, to Mother Nature, or wow, to the God of whatever, are actually things that have been created and give glory and are like a signpost and are like the voice of God who created them to you. Which is why they're like the voice of God. It's like people should see and hear them. They should see and hear God, something of his glory as they watch and listen. Something of his wonder, his power. So this thunder, earthquake, lightning, it's not representing nature's power. It's proclaiming and demonstrating God's power because he's the one who created it. And so we get to this climax in that verse, the resounding cry of glory, all of creation. God's temple cries out together, glory. The angels and creation and mountain and thunder and lightning and everything that God has made cries glory to God because he made it all. It's what the psalmist is saying. And when it says temple here, do not be fooled. This is not about a temple that's been made by bricks and stuck down a street. The whole world is God's temple. The whole of God's creation is his temple. And it's all crying back to him. Glory. So what should be our response? Well, the way this psalm ends is fascinating. Because after the noise and the power and the drama of the storm, the final scene is one of absolute peace. God's enthroned, which means, surprise, surprise, he's sitting on a throne. And he's ruling and reigning over the whole world he's created. And there's a promise there 
that God will give strength and God will bless his people. It's a picture that he is at peace. He'll give peace to his people. Verse 10, verse 11, just read it. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood, over the world, over everything he's created. The Lord's enthroned as king forever, which means forever. It literally means forever. Without, it never ends. Forever. King forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. When I was researching this, one commentator said this. The closing word, with peace, is like a rainbow arch over the psalm. The beginning of this psalm shows us heaven open, while its close shows us his victorious people on earth, blessed with peace in the midst of terrible utterances of his wrath. Gloria in excelsis, which I just remember we kind of say at Christmas sometimes, which means glory to God in the highest. That's what's in the beginning. And then in terror pax, and which means and peace on earth to mankind at the end. So this psalm starts with glory to God in the highest and ends with peace on earth to men and women. What should our response be? Let me just try and give it to you in three stages. Number one, I think, first one, to live in order to please God. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Paul says, we wrote to you because we wanted you to live in order to please God. And now you are living in order to please God. We want to urge you and encourage you to do that more and more. Live in order to please God. What a great way of thinking about our lives. What a great aim for every day, every moment. Today, God, I'm going to live to please you. Wake up the next day, what shall I do? I know what I'll do. Today, God, I'm going to live to please you. What shall I do the day after? Hmm. Today, God. I think this is better than WWJD or whatever that one is, which is another good one, but it's not as good as this one. And the word there, live, is literally to walk. It's a metaphor Paul uses a lot to describe the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, for we live by faith, not by sight. Literally, we walk by faith. We walk the walk by faith, not by sight. We walk through the days of this world, the days of our lives with God, trusting in him. Not trusting in what we see just with our physical eyes in the here and now, but understanding there's a greater reality, which is God. Ephesians 4 verse 1, Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Even while Paul's in prison, he's chained up for his faith. He's unable to go and walk anywhere himself, yet he's urging the believers to live the life, to walk the walk of faith. That's they're worthy of because God's made them his children, his ambassadors. Live in order to please God. It's got to be the number one response. That's a matter of the heart. If we're going to live in order to please God, I think that's all about relationship. I think that's all about relationship with him. That's where it starts. Jesus died that we might have relationship. Relationship is what defines, determines, shapes everything in our lives. Our relationship to God changes how we feel, what we do, how we respond. God so wanted that relationship with us when we didn't have one with us that he sent his son to pay the price. We reminded ourselves about it earlier. So God, I believe, wants that relationship which we have with him to be the defining thing, the determining thing, the daily reality that affects our lives. 
And he's God. He made that relationship possible. He's not a silent partner. He's not a disinterested partner. We sung about it. He's good. He's kind. He loves us. He, doesn't, he, he won't take relationship on our terms. How foolish are we if we think we're going to battle with God? Well, I'll tell you what, God, let's sit down and have a chat about it. If you do this, I'll do that. It's always on his terms because he's the one who pulled us out of the mud and the mire, as the Bible says. We never laid down our lives for him. He was never in trouble. God was never lost. God was never dead. God was never defiled by sin. He's holy, remember, without sin. He was never without hope in this world. He never needed saving. He's always been the savior. There's only one story, and he's the hero of it. Thirdly, I believe God wants what we do now, how we think, how we live, to come out of that relationship with him. We don't live and serve for God's grace and acceptance. We live and serve from God's grace and acceptance. Let me say that again because I like it. It's not mine. Anything good I say, I've always stolen from someone else. I don't know who I stole it from, but I'm sure I did. We don't live for God's grace and acceptance. We've got that already. We're sons and daughters. But we do live from it. That M makes a massive difference. Makes all the difference in the world. You're very miserable if you don't have that M, by the way. Because <laughs> you're still trying to work for grace and acceptance and forgiveness that you have. <laughs> and actually, lots of that will be expressed in loving our brothers and sisters. Yeah, of course it involves reaching the world and reaching out, but it starts with loving the family of God because God loves the family of God and God loves the family of God because it's his family and he's God. And that's what Jesus laid his life down for. He did lay his life down for you and me, but he laid his life down for his children, for his church. He loves his church. We've been going through Meet the Bible. We're coming to the end of it. In fact, this, today we've only got a few. We've got a Meet the Bible lunch because we're like 11 months through the 12 months. We're coming to the end, so we're going to have a lunch together to celebrate. But on one of our recently monthly Meet the Bible Zoom meetings, someone made this comment, wow, there are a lot of instructions and encouragements in the New Testament, especially from Jesus, for Christians to love one another. There are, there really are. You'd almost imagine that Jesus says, hey, if you want to love me, love your Christian brother and sister. Could almost summarize the New Testament in that. Wouldn't be too far away. So pleasing God starts and comes out of relationship with God. So how do we do that? I think day by day, third thing I would say, I think it's seek him with all our hearts. Jeremiah 29, 11, verse you know. For I know the plans I have for you, declares God, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you'll call on me and come and pray to me, and I'll listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Now, this was said to the people of God just before one of their darkest days. They've rebelled against God. He's warned them. They've ignored him. And guess who is coming now to execute God's judgment on God's people? The Babylonians. Who leads the Babylonians? King Nebuchadnezzar. We've heard that name before this morning. King Nebuchadnezzar, who Claire spoke about, is the king of the Babylonians. And in this moment, when God speaks these words through the prophet Jeremiah, it's, about, it's, like, it's, it's the darkest moment. The Babylonians are about to come to conquer them, to destroy them, to take away their city. And yet God, in that moment, speaks to them about a time in their future when they will repent, when they'll turn back. And he says these amazing words, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, give you a future. 
Yeah, but God, the Babylonians are smashing down the wall. Nebuchadnezzar, he's here, he's, he's come. The people of God's nation is about to be decimated. Their way of life is about to be swept away. And it's their fault for repeatedly ignoring the warnings of God. And yet in that moment, God gives them a hope and a promise to cling on to. No, no, I, have, I know the plans I have for you, and they're good plans. You will turn back to me. And just notice what God says turning back will look like. You will call on me and pray and seek me and listen, and you will find me. Sounds a lot like relationship to me. Sounds like a walking together through life, the ups and downs. And this promise by God that his people will find him, seek him, when they seek him with all their heart and their soul, and they cry out to him, call out to him. It's why we have these weeks of prayer, like the one we're having this week. It's not about filling the diary. It's about seeking him, calling to him, praying to him, asking for his blessing, his protection. God, will you set us free? God, will you protect us from the devil's scheme? God, will you advance your kingdom? Will you intervene? Will you speak into the life of this person, that person? Will you answer this prayer? God, will you? We want to see your kingdom come, God. And we know we can't do it. But we know you can do it. And somehow you're going to use us for it. And you know, this promise of God, so that if we seek him, we'll find him. It's of old, Deuteronomy 4.29. We're going right back to early days now. But if you, from there, but if from there you seek the Lord your God, you'll find him. If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Right back from old, right through the Bible, absolutely true today. If we will seek after God, we will find him. So let me end by just asking you a couple of questions. How? When, in what ways are you going to live to please God this week? How? When? What are you going to do? How? When? In what ways are you going to seek, call out, pray to God this week? Again, we're not doing it to earn God's acceptance. But because we are accepted by God, we get the chance. We get the opportunity to come before him this week and do this because we're sons and daughters who he loves. We've got his ear. We've got his heart. I really want you to go away with those two questions ringing in your ears. But much more, I'd much rather actually there's God plant something in your heart as a kind of answer, a response to them. So I wonder whether you could just close your eyes for a moment. I'm just going to Invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us. Just to speak into our hearts. Holy Spirit, we just invite you right now, just in the still and the quiet. Would you speak to us? Anything that is on your heart, Lord. Anything that you want to say to us, want to remind us, encourage us with. Maybe the answer to that question, how do I live to please God? What do I need to do tomorrow, Tuesday, next Saturday? Holy Spirit, I pray, come speak to us. Come and show us. And this week, we ask you help us to pray. You help us to call out the things that are on your hearts. 